Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, November 17th, 2016. Where does the time go? We take a two-week break after this for the Thanksgiving holiday, and then we are back on the air on December 1st. Then we're off for the winter holidays, and we come back January 5th. Who is Private Investor AO1? That's something dug up by Bill Padalo, and we're going to talk about that tonight. We dig deeper tonight into the illusion of loans, transfers of loans, and false claims of securitization, as well as something called modification fraud, which comes in a variety of flavors. We're getting closer and closer to the day when courts will start to recognize the real issues and start ruling consistently against the banks who so far have affected some 8 million illegal, immoral, and arrogant procedures to force innocent people from their homes. Almost 20 million people have been displaced so far, and we mean to stop it. This doesn't happen overnight. I've been doing this 10 years. But when you have people like me and my guests working for years to stop the flood, History shows that eventually the truth prevails. And, of course, in a world where truth is at a minimum, those who speak the truth are considered to be fringe people. The general rule when you speak the truth in a falsified world is that first they laugh at you, second they get mad at you, because some people are starting to believe it. Third, they fight you with everything they have, and finally they are forced to accept it. I'd say we're in phase three, as the big guns are coming out from big law firms out of the shadows to fight people like me and my guests tonight as we bring the battle to their doorstep. Tonight we continue with attorney Charles Marshall, who joins me as co-host of the show, and Bill Padalo. Um See, Bill, I actually said your name right. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're getting much better, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Bill, I think, I think we've got your name straight out for, from now on. <laughs> well, I hope so, but I'll... 
at almost 70, we have to expect some degree of dementia to set in. Um, as a private investigator, Bill drills down about as deep as anyone I know, and he keeps finding more of the same, more lies, more fraud, more irreconcilable numbers. Yes, he's looking at the money trail taken from multiple IT platforms producing multiple different irreconcilable reports in which numbers are created out of whole cloth. Living Lies is inching closer to delivering the online short mini-seminar on trial objections. It won't be released until I am personally satisfied with the format and the content. I will tell you that nothing gets the judge more focused than well-founded objections, and nothing makes the homeowner's lawyer seem more irrelevant when he or she does not make a timely objection. If a lawyer wants to be a trial lawyer, they must be willing to take the fight to the bench and to the opposition. They must be prepared to get a pie in the face because trial lawyers are the warriors who are fighting the battle that their clients can't fight. That's why they're hired. I don't need to tell that to Charles Marshall or to many other lawyers that I know because that's the way they practice. Charles understands why he's in the courtroom. He has prepared the narrative that he'll pursue at trial, and he knows how, when, and why he will raise objections. And lest I ignore the recent spate of inquiries in the last week about rescission, let me just summarize. There actually is no such thing as a lawsuit to enforce TILA rescission. TILA rescission is effective all by itself when mailed, and that's by operation of the law that created TILA rescission, at 15 U.S.C. 1635. That's not my opinion. It's a fact. It's the wording of the statute. It's also the wording of the Supreme Court of the United States in a unanimous decision in Jesenowski versus Countrywide. This is not theory. This is fact. If there is to be a lawsuit by the homeowner, it might be to quiet title or to enforce the duties of the party claiming to be the creditor or who is supposedly acting on behalf of an undisclosed creditor. Those duties include return of the canceled note, release of the encumbrance, and return of all money paid by the borrower or paid to third parties as compensation. The reactionary rebellion by judges across the country in state and federal courts is no excuse for disobeying the law and disobeying the ruling from their boss of bosses, the Supreme Court of the United States. But it is a fact that judges don't like the wording of the statute and they keep rewriting it from the bench, something that is definitely not allowed under any circumstances. And again, that's not my opinion. It's the rule set down by the Supreme Court of the United States and Congress when they wrote the statute. Recording the rescission is the best way, in my opinion, to pull the linchpin on the crooked banks. By putting that in the county records, 
the issue of title becomes a problem for them, even as they ignore it or file motions in court as though they were the creditor, which they can no longer allege or prove because the note and mortgage became void on the day that the loan contract was canceled, which is the day that the teal of rescission was mailed. By the time they would sue to vacate the rescission, they are long past the 20 days that Congress gave them to poop or get off the pot. And I'll leave it at that. If you want more information, you can contact us and at uh, 202-838-6345, and we can help you through that. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call our number at 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Hit the donate button on the blog or make the call. Charles Marshall, attorney, has offices in San Diego and operates throughout California. He practices in all federal California districts, and he's been the lead attorney in federal and state appeals. He can be reached at 619-807-2628. And the information on Bill Padalo is he can be reached at 406-328-4075. And his website is... Uh, www.b as in boy, p as in Peter, investigativeagency.com. Welcome back, Charles and Bill. Yes, Neil. Good to be co-hosting again. So uh, we're going to be continuing in part what we started the last two weeks and moving on to some other issues tonight. Uh, let me reset the stage here. Uh, nearly everybody has been accepting the numbers put out by servicers or attorneys for servicers, even when they're dead wrong. Hardly anyone really checks or reconciles the numbers to see if, the, for example, the right to reinstate has been accurately stated. Very often, it's not. In fact, if you take what is said in the uh, default letter and the demand for reinstatement, and they tell you what's due and they, and they break it down by month, you notice that the monthly payment that they're using many times is not the monthly payment that you were paying. So... I've had several cases 
like that, and there was the witness at trial, when challenged to reconcile that, couldn't. Needless to say, we won. I mean, we don't win all the time, but we win a lot because of things like that. And now people like Bill Padalo, who had his own issue with the banks, they uh, tangled with the wrong person. Bill is like one of those bulldogs where if you get him upset and he bites in, he doesn't ever let go. He's been drilling down as a, as a private investigator, which he is, as a licensed private investigator, deeper and deeper, seeing that even in modification and end-of-month statements, the numbers are wrong and based upon false or misleading representations, improper posting, everything you can imagine, all designed to get the homeowner into foreclosure. One of the ways they do that is through the use of multiple IT platforms, computer platforms, with the intent to drive the homeowner nuts and to sidestep lawyers who are not accountants and who don't sit down for an hour or two and take a look at the numbers going back and say, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. We need to get accountants involved in this process now. If you know an accountant who is interested or willing to branch out, there's a lot of business here for him or her, and I'm willing to get on the phone with them and sell them on the idea of getting involved and doing the work. We're not looking for them to, to skew the evidence. We just want an objective, truthful, credible opinion. Bill Padalo, last week we got as far as we could on loan modification fraud, which is related to other investigation work you're performing in tracking the money trail. One of the fascinating things about modification fraud is that this is happening at times without the homeowners knowing anything about it to reflect the lies that the banks are telling investors. And we'll get to the investor issue in a minute. After Bill Padalo brought it up, I have discovered other instances where homeowners are turned down on requests for modification while at the same time, the same time as they've been rejected, the terms of the debt are changed by unilateral modification. Bill, brings, Bill bring us up to date on modification fraud which I might add, I think is just an offshoot of foreclosure fraud, which in turn is just an offshoot of mortgage fraud and securities fraud. Bring us up to date on modification fraud. Well, thanks, Neil. I think uh, you kind of hit it on the head where they have multiple platforms of reporting to uh, the data to the, either the homeowners or the investors or whomever it might be. And for years, uh, when people file a QWR request or something of that nature where they're asking for documents and discovery regarding the full accounting of the loans, uh, typically what they get back from the servicer is a regurgitation of their payment history solely. And they're not uh, disclosing and showing 
uh, how they're playing with those numbers and reporting those numbers to the investors. And that is the type of data that I tap into. And uh, it's kind of funny that oftentimes I get challenged on this data uh, from the banks and trustees and whomever's representing the the, the parties in court uh, as to uh, what I'm speaking to and its reliability and so on and so forth. And I, I usually come back and say, well, listen, if if you are questioning the reliability of this data, this comes from uh, the trust administrators, the master servicers, the exact parties where uh, who are reporting uh, to the investors in the global community. So if you're saying that this information is inaccurate or you have problems with this information and data, I think the investors globally would like to know that uh, this is the type of information that they rely on uh, when they're making, uh, you know, giant institutional investments. But um, where I was kind of leaving off last week before I um, inadvertently got cut off somehow is uh, one of the clients that was came to me in Montana and said, listen, I, I, or I reported back that there had been a uh, modification, a capitalization mod of the loan without their knowledge and that you know upset them obviously. Well, they had gone to the attorney general's office in, in, here in the state of Montana and filed a complaint. And I, I was following along with some of the dialogue between the AG's office and NationStar. And, uh, you know, you start off last week's program talking a little bit about, you know, the political uh, arena with the election and whatnot. But it was it, it flabbergasting it me when NationStar comes back and basically tells the attorney general that that's confidential information and to go pound salt. Uh, we're not we're not going to provide the uh, modification documentation or anything that you're requesting. Um, and from that point, uh, the AG just basically closed the file and backed down and didn't pursue anything else on that. But uh, one other let's stop. interesting, yep. Let's let's stop right there for a second because that is the nub of the whole economic crisis that started in 2008. What they're saying and getting away with is that the the name of the person or persons or company or companies that you owe as a homeowner, your creditor, that's private information and you're not allowed to know who you're doing business with. And besides just common sense, it is statutory law that that is not true. In fact, if you look back at when the Truth in Lending Act was first passed back in the 1960s, the main purpose of that was to make sure that every consumer had a choice of who they wanted to do business with and that it wasn't forced down their throat. For example, I spoke on a consultation today with somebody who they were current on their payments Bank of America was driving them nuts because they weren't applying the payments right. In other words, they were setting it up for a foreclosure even though they were paying. Uh, 
And so they re, they did a refinance, and of course they didn't understand securitization and that all the banks are in this together as partners. So after the refinance, they get a letter saying that Bank of America is the servicer. So they're back with Bank of America. This is an example of how the people are not getting the information that Congress said they should get. It's not my opinion. It's not for a judge to render an opinion. It's the law that you should know who your creditor is. And uniformly, throughout the country, you go to court or you go to the attorney general, like, like Bill's customer did, and they ask who's the creditor, they're told in one form or another, none of your business. This is private, proprietary information. So let me tell you, and just to interrupt you, Bill, the reason why it's private information. I'll start off by saying that if they had a creditor, they would, in every case, bring that creditor forward show that that creditor has money in the deal, either funded the loan or funded the purchase of the loan, became a holder in due course, and that turns everything on its head for the homeowner who has now assumed the risk because they signed paper, even if it was worthless at the time they signed it, that's now shifted the risk of loss onto the homeowner. So if they did have a creditor, they would have come forward with it. So why are they telling the attorney general of a state, and indeed they said the same thing to the attorney general of the United States, we're not going to tell you who the creditor is. And the answer is because they can't. And the reason they can't is because the so-called securitization process never really happened. All they did was take the money and put it into a pool that was used not for acquisition of loans, which is what securitization is about, but they used it to originate loans. So in nearly all cases, certainly over 95% of the 80 million loans and refis and so forth that were done during this time, the money came from investors in one sense because they gave it to the, the underwriting bank. But the investors never intended to go into a deal originating loans with homeowners. So what you've got is a double-blind fraud, one against the investors where their money was stolen and then put to use for loans, but only a portion of the money that was given by the investors was used for loans, and the other 
is the fraud against the borrower who's signing a note thinking that the person he's promising to pay on the note is giving them a loan, but they never do. So when, when Bill or I or Charles actually get into the issue of demanding to know who is the creditor. Very simple. Who's got money in this deal? They're just claiming proprietary and none of your business. There's no legal basis for them to do so, and that needs to be aggressively challenged. I'm done with my long interruption. <laughs> well, actually, I, I think that's a pretty good segue into the uh, investor code A01 issue that uh, we're also going to talk about a little bit here. Um, and that's going to the heart of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and you know, to kind of give a little background on this, but it, what you're saying here is, and this is what we're confronting, I'm confronting, and homeowners all across the country are confronting in this uh, WAMU Chase FDIC scenario, is that <clears throat> I've now been able to connect the dots and show, in many cases, um, that the Washington Mutual Bank um, – in their selling and securitizing of these loans prior to receivership, they were using and selling uh, primarily to an investor A01, and that code. And that private investor, who we know is a private investor, who J.P. Morgan Chase has admitted is a private investor, they are refusing to identify. Now, the reasons they're, they're not identifying or refusing are, you know, we can speculate, and there, there are many reasons, a lot of them for what you probably just described. Uh, and I think there's obviously potential to be uh, scenarios that are a lot more sinister than that. <laughs> um, but it goes through, um, yep. Go ahead. I agree. Go ahead. Hello? Yes. Did we lose? Uh, Neil, 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 another piece of this. Yeah. This is okay. Uh, ho ho hopefully, I'm still on. Yes, you are. Go ahead. Right. So, so one thing I wanted to add, Neil, and and also to you, Bill. Um, one of the confirmations of how this whole process is set up from the beginning, as uh, essentially a, a a fraud through the securitization process, and this is consistent with what you were saying a minute ago, Neil, these loans go into a securitized status sometimes within hours of origination. Days is extremely common. Sometimes it might be several weeks, sometimes longer, but a huge portion of loans I know in California, the ones that I review, reviewed, the thousands you know, over the last uh, eight years or so, I have seen time and time again that the origination of the securitized loan happens l literally within days in a, in a huge portion of these loans. And that's clearly evidence that this scheme is set up purposely from the beginning to create the effect that it creates. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's set up before anybody even applies for a loan because they have a purchase and assumption agreement before 
the so-called originator starts originating, and this includes major banks down to you know non-bank uh, fly-by-night uh, originators, and the the deal states. I've read the document. The deal states that you as the originator will say that you are the lender and you will not mention us and we'll come in after the closing and then take charge of the paper. And in taking charge of the paper, they pay nothing to the originator except a fee for the origination, which is proof positive that the originator did not fund the loan. If they had funded a loan for $200,000, do you think they would just take a $1,000 fee to, uh, to pass it on to somebody else? Of course not. Precisely. Well, and then I, the other aspect to this is that the securitizing party, they come, they come in so early that clearly that's evidence that this was all set up from the beginning and yet the only party who's not privy to this is the borrower who carries most of the liability and who carries the obligation on the debt. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it is a rigged system, to use that term that we've been hearing about in the political arena for some time. Well, yeah. one of the, the clear things that I'm, I'm able to see a lot of times in this internal data is that they are reporting the exact originator of these loans. <clears throat> and oftentimes, I would probably have to guess 50% of the time, it is not the named originators that are on the documents and the deeds and the mortgages and the contracts. They are reporting that. Uh, and when I look at the, some of these originators and I find some of that language that they're uh, a party uh, deep within the, the participants in the pooling and servicing agreements or whatnot. But um, oftentimes the parties who show up in the data, <clears throat> again, as the originator, there is no record of that party anywhere in the chain of title, whether it's the contracts or in the county records or anywhere. Um, so they are, they, they are clearly hiding under the weeds. I can tell you, I, I can uh, certainly uh, uh, support that by uh, an event that happened, uh, well, didn't just happen once, but one in particular uh, involved American Brokers Conduit, which is an entity that doesn't actually exist. Uh, several people have claimed that they do business under that name. Uh, but they they were the so-called originator in the sense that they were named the payee on the note and the mortgagee on the mortgage. And we went to trial, and they brought all kinds of documents, and because I pay attention to detail, I asked the, the robo-witness there, what's this? And he says, well, that's the investor. I said, so who's the investor? He said, Freddie Mac. I said, when did they become the investor? He said, they've been the investor from the very start. And the judge said, what? <laughs> so, yeah. besides the, the country, besides 
fact that he was admitting that American Brokers Conduit had not funded the loan, he was also wrong because Freddie Mac is not a lender. So I don't know even know what he thought he meant. But that case was settled quite beneficially to the uh, homeowner. Yeah, the 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 whole you know countrywide. There's all these number of players, but you know you look at countrywide and how they use these names of their entities just interchangeable on the documents and in, in, in just one particular transaction half the time the, the names don't match up between the HUD-1 settlement statements and the deeds and the mortgages where for example they'll come in and say it was Countrywide Bank FSB as the lender or they'll call it uh, uh, Countrywide Bank FSB a division of Treasury Bank NA as the lender and and then you look at the HUD-1 settlement statement, and it'll say Countrywide Home Loans, Inc., which was their securitization uh, uh, entity that was you know, created solely for the purpose of securitizing loans and selling these things. But they, they play with these names of these entities as though they're all one and the same. And, and that's clearly you have to segregate these, these entities out and explain that they are operating completely separate from one another. They're not the same. And so you run into the same thing with Washington Mutual, where if they want to get, you know, kind of play games with the names, they just say, uh, and you'll read pleadings all over the country where the attorneys come in and say, let's just, let's just shorten and call it Washington Mutual. We'll just say everything is Washington Mutual. And you have to stop and say, no, you can't. There is no entity called Washington Mutual, okay? <laughs> There's Washington Mutual, Inc., and then all these subsidiaries. Um, I had a case came across my desk the other day where there's an endorsement uh, on the note to Washington and the rest of it's completely Ill illegible. And yet the court and everybody is just taking the presumption that that must mean Washington mutual. Like that doesn't matter what entity or whatever, it clearly was intended for Washington somebody. And I, and I have to point out that that isn't, that's an issue on the chain of title right there. You, you don't, you can't tell which entity that could have been Washington Mutual Mortgage Securities Corp. You don't know what entity that could be. So, um, but anyway, you have to be, I, I would be, and I'm sure you guys are aware that in contract law 101, uh, the birth certificate name that we have on our birth certificates, uh, business names that they file and record as their official documents that they uh, file with the secretaries of state is like their birth certificate. And it's very critical that they use the exact name that they're doing business as, you know, and, and for years now they're getting away with horseshoes and hand grenades here, you know, close enough, right? <laughs> and Bill, what you're describing is a perfect example of the kind of institutional bias that I see judges in California, unfortunately, let, let through all the time. I mean, if it's from the borrower's side, you know, the, the guy or gal, you know, in pro per pro se or with an attorney heading upstream to try to put pleadings, you know, into these into these lawsuits and into these cases. From their side, they will usually be held to a pretty strict standard of pleading and to how evidence is presented and how those kinds of discrepancies are handled by the court. But from the institutional servicer and lender side, Th that type of uh, accommodation, I have to say, I see it happen all the time, where critical aspects to documents 
are simply not legally conforming, and yet judges will sign off on it many times if it comes from the institutional side rather than the borrower side. I think that's that's an interesting point because I'm just imagining here, uh, and Bill, I think that was a good example, the birth certificate. So let's say I go out and rob a bank and they charge Neil Franklin Garfield with the, robber, with the robbery, and I tell him, well, my name, by the time they get to me, my name is uh, Brad Schwartz. So you go, you know, bring whatever action you want against Neil Garfield, but not against me because I've just renamed myself. They don't like they don't like that, and they don't let you do it. But that's what, in essence, is happening in the courts, because and there have been some decisions, especially with Chase and Wamu, uh, where the courts have said you can't pretend that these are independent legal entities on the one hand, and then ignore it on the other. Either they are or they're not, and if they are then that's the entity that ought to be here. And I published an article, I think it was sometime this year, um, uh, about that. And and the, the other thing that I just wanted to drill in, because it's so counterintuitive and it's hard for people to understand, but Countrywide Inc., um, was an aggregator, and that's what a lot of these entities are. They're just sham conduits. Now, if securitization was working right, they'd be aggregating loans, but they weren't. They were aggregating paper. They were aggregating notes and mortgages, but they weren't aggregating loans because the debt that is owed directly to the investors who were defrauded, but is still owed by the homeowner to them, the debt did not follow the note or the mortgage. And the note, that the debt did not merge with the note, and therefore the mortgage is securing the faithful performance under a note that is void. At least it's void until somebody actually buys it. But in no case have I seen any instance where uh, a bank or a trustee or servicer or whatever has said there was a purchase here. Here's the wire transfer receipt. We are a holder in due course, and that means the risk of loss is on the maker of the instrument, which, of course, would be the homeowner, who was defrauded into signing a note and mortgage to the wrong party. Um, and, of course, the, the homeowner and, for that matter, the closing agent were fooled because the money showed up on the table. So if the closing agent sees the exact amount that he was looking for, he doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to what bank it came from or 
um, uh, what the situation is, and he doesn't make any inquiries, and he—that's just not the standard of the industry where he becomes an investigator. If he gets the money, and he's got his instructions, and the the borrower, the so-called borrower, is willing to sign it, well, then as far as the closing agent is concerned, he's fulfilling his duties. So, Bill, we've got a few minutes left here. Who do you think is AO1? Well, if I if I had to guess, it's one of three parties. It's going to be one of uh, Washington Mutual Sec- Mortgage Securities Corp, Washington Mutual Asset Acceptance Corp, or WAMU Capital Corp. It's going to be one of those th- uh, three parties to which um, they were uh, originating the loans through Washington Mutual Bank or FA, one of those two entities, and then uh, getting it into their off-balance sheet activities, as we discussed on a previous show. And I believe that that's an, one of the first initial transfers. As I've, as I've reviewed these loan transfer history screenshots, um, the very first player in these WAMU loans was typically AO1. And then there was another player that usually consistently came in second on the next transfer, and that was A11. And so what I think was going on is that this was the first step to the first party in the securitization chain. Um, and so that, that's my guess as of the moment. I think uh, I'm getting much closer to uh, solving this mystery. Um, but you know, as long as I'm on your radio program, I'd certainly send out an invitation to anybody out there listening that uh, if you have any knowledge, if you work for one of these entities or whatnot, uh, certainly uh, get a hold of me. Uh, if you want to talk in confidence or whatnot, share some information. Um, I'm, I'd certainly like to hear what you have to say. Um, but the fact is, is that I, having looked at these screenshots, these are critical documents to go after in discovery. And once you push those buttons for those transfer histories, um, all heck breaks, loose, uh, so to speak. Um, they, they give a lot of pushback. And now, when I've been consulting with uh, clients and attorneys across the country to go after these specific documents, uh, what's coming back is very interesting. Now now they're coming back incomplete, whereas previously they weren't concerned about anybody discovering this, and I've had you know loan transfer histories of WAMU loans going back to origination from 03, 04, 05, all the way up until current, but now that post or I should say pre-receivership data is suddenly uh, being scrubbed. It doesn't exist on the, on the screenshots. <laughs> so um, they, I think they're nervous because that, those full transfer history screenshots tell the entire story. And, uh, and I know and I believe that they clearly have that evidence uh, in their possession, uh, but they're just, not, they're just not coughing it up anymore. Um, because but, they, they produced it. And, and and what that also shows, and this as a lawyer, this is what brings it up for me, is that they're changing these reports for purposes of presentation at trial, and they're not just business records, which means that they're not entitled the uh, exception to hearsay to allow the records in, and they're not trustworthy which means they're not entitled to any presumption either. 
So well, yeah. Well, let me sh- uh, let me share one more quick uh, quickie on this, Neil. Um, I don't have time. It, around July, don't have time. Yeah, we're gonna have to cut off here. I want to thank uh, uh, Charles Marshall and Bill Padalo me here, and we will be back with you in two weeks. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.